Summits Unplugged, the Multilateral Negotiations Podcast by Samuel. There is much at stake on the stage of world politics. We talk to those who know how to handle it. Recognizing the importance of what we had all achieved together. Dialogue, dialogue, dialogue and hard work. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Summits Unplugged, the multilateral negotiation podcast coming to you from online marketing rockstar studio in Hamburg and Semyun, the Center for Multilateral Negotiations. My name is Celine, and before we start, I'm sure you'd like to know who's sitting behind these microphones and why. Well, thank you, Celine. Maybe I can help out by introducing myself. My name is Kai Monheim. I'm director of the Center for Multilateral Negotiations. Why am I sitting here? Good question. Well, the center is here to promote global cooperation. And there's probably no single more important topic than climate change and the cooperation on this. So that's why we are running the center to support governments and international organizations around the world to foster multilateral cooperation. Why are we having this podcast today, Celine? That's another good question. Hmm. Well, we thought How about someone collects best practices from the people that really know how to run a successful summit? And we could not think of many other people other than our first guest as a great facilitator in the past and the present to do this. And before we move there, Celine, what's your purpose actually? Thanks, Kai. Uh, it's a difficult question, but for now I'd say my purpose is to generally listen to people and their views and positions in this world and to create some kind of dialogue that creates inspiration or learnings on important topics. So just as Kai said, I also can think of a more outstandingly special guest for our very first episode. Hello, Patricia. What's your purpose? Hello, Celine. Well, my purpose is actually very similar to yours and Kai's. I look forward always also to promote cooperation in order to address the biggest challenges of humanity. I've been uh, in diplomatic uh, service for many, many years, too many maybe, <laughs> uh, and uh, this has been really my driving force. Very good. Driving force, Patricia, I think that's a fantastic quote that I'd, I'd actually like to add with one more. This driving force brought you in a position at a key summit in the process of climate negotiations in Cancun in 2010, so 10 years ago, where, quote-unquote, your driving force as presiding president over these important negotiations brought you to a point where we collected a quote on you. And the quote was from negotiators that you were presiding over at the summit, the feeling of last night, the last night of the summit, was absolute euphoria. Espinosa was like a rock star. End of the quote. Well, I guess that's a nice one to generate among delegates. And so let me introduce also more officially with a very warm welcome, Patricia Espinosa the Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change from the Bonn headquarters as our first and very special guest to our new podcast series. Patricia, warm welcome to you. So amazing to have you here. 
Thank you so much, Kai. Thank you for your very, very kind invitation to join you in this podcast. And thank you also for bringing back the, that quote uh, from <laughs> 2010. You have made my day. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Patricia, with a pleasure. Let me, for our listeners that are not in the ins and outs of the UN climate negotiations, share that, Patricia, um, you were born in Mexico City and you've been longtime diplomat for the Mexican Foreign Service, ambassador to many countries, among others to Germany. But you've also been foreign minister for six years between 06 and 12 for your country. And you've covered a myriad of important topics. You worked on human rights and women's and children's rights, drug trafficking, social development. And in the last years, your focus shifted entirely to climate change. It started a little bit. I'm not if, sure if that's fair to say, Patricia, but maybe really with your presidency, with your team, of course, the Mexican team of the summit process that led to Cancun in 2010 of the Framework Convention. And then even more so, a few years later, you took up the role you're currently in in 2016 as the executive secretary of the UN Climate Secretariat. So what an impressive road and now you are there and you're working on the key topic of the world today i suppose it's fair to say so i hand over to celine and we're excited to hear about on our first question right so patricia thanks kai for her introduction this is indeed a very impressive cv which is why i'd love to know from you about the lessons you've learned in your life so in your first positions responsible for negotiations which valuable lessons did you learn that you are still applying today? Well, first of all, let me uh, thank you very much for that very generous introduction. Going to your question, which are the important lessons in negotiation management? Well, I would say that the first lesson, the ABC for negotiations would be understand, listen, and try to put yourself in the position of the other party or parties. You sit around a table, you listen to people, you try to visualize what the reality is, where they are coming from, why they are expressing those positions. Second uh, lesson that I think is very important and sometimes it is overlooked is that everybody matters. The people, meaning the public, the delegates, the politicians, the other UN entities, civil society, mm -hmm. everybody. It's really, uh, you have to visualize yourself as if everybody is watching you, looking at what you are doing, because if you are sitting there, if you are undertaking a negotiation, mm -hmm. a multilateral negotiation, it means that it is an important topic. It means it is a topic that is touching lives of many, many people around the world. Mm -hmm. So Surely. you have to bear that in mind. Amazing. You certainly touched already on many topics that we're going to elaborate on later, if you'd like. And you certainly implemented some of these lessons learned in 2010 when you hosted the Cancun Summit, about which some parties said it was the strongest COP support team we have ever had. This was said by UN officials and negotiators, which is why I'd like to ask you, what do you think was different in your facilitation compared to former summits? Just very briefly. 
Well, you know, one of the, the big points that I focused at that time in my, in my role as foreign minister for my country was to rebuild trust. It was very clear that there was really um, trust was, was had been eroded, that uh, countries uh, were really not talking clearly to each other. So mm-hmm. trust building was one very important aspect. The other aspect was really to make a process that was transparent, where everybody would know what was going on, mm-hmm. what I was up to, who was talking to whom, why we were doing that, what was the sequence, that there, there should be clarity on the way forward, but also permanent, permanent feedback on what was good, what was going on. The third element was inclusiveness really, and this has to do with the point I raised earlier, really listen to everyone. Mm -hmm. I um, was, for example, particularly sensitive to the uh, fact that uh, civil society and especially indigenous peoples were feeling really completely excluded from the negotiations. And yes, it is not their role to be the decision makers in the negotiations. However, their voices are relevant. They can make contributions, but their concerns are also something that are important for the political realities in so many countries around the world. So we created a very, I would say, nice and good space for their interaction. And I made sure that there was a permanent communication between our negotiation team and these groups that were actually elsewhere physically because we didn't have the infrastructure to have everybody together. Another element was that um, we had the benefit of the leadership, direct engagement and leadership at the political level very early in the negotiation. Of course, I was devoting a lot of my time to that, mm-hmm. but also the president, the president of Mexico, President Calderon at that time, he was also dedicating a lot of time to his engagements regarding climate change. So in short, I would say dialogue, 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 and hard work. <laughs> Wow, this sounds like a complex cooking recipe, so to speak, for making a good and successful summit and such important building blocks, Patricia. If you're stressing these three ingredients, dialogue, dialogue, (laughs) and dialogue, um, one question on this. On a summit like this, and you know this better than, than many others, a dialogue happens on different levels. And of course, there are these what we know from television, uh, looking at the news of a summit, right? You see hundreds of negotiators sitting in a plenary room, listening to opening statements. I guess this is far from what we would as normal citizens consider a dialogue. It looks more like one-way speeches. And my question would be to you, there's also something that negotiator geeks, quote unquote, call the informal dialogues. So space that's maybe smaller and more confidential and where we hear a lot of progress can be achieved. Can you help our listeners and us a little bit? How can you use these kind of dialogues? What's a good setup of them? And what are also some don'ts in terms of an informal dialogue? 
Yeah, the first point I would like to make is that, you know, these two aspects of the positioning of, uh, of countries are complementary. They yes. complement each other. On the one side, it is important that we have that countries have the opportunity to present their positions, to make their okay. positions known. What are their concerns? What are the opportunities they see? So that's that's the role of those more general debates and um, that sometimes, yes, they may be very heavy because it's uh, a long succession of speeches, yeah. but they also are, are useful because they provide insight on, on what the thinking of the different countries are. Mm -hmm. And maybe, by the way, now with this um, change in our mode of work through the Corona times, the available technology that may be changing into the future. But you are absolutely right. I mean, the building the common understandings requires a much closer dialogue requires colleagues to sit together and to work actually as a team in trying to find those common understandings that will bring the process forward. Now, sometimes there is a risk that these uh, informal smaller dialogues can be seen as places where some agreements uh, may be cooked, as, uh, as we say, and then uh, they would intend to be imposed on the rest of the membership. And that is something that is important to manage. So in order to manage that risk, uh, what is important is to give a lot of clarity to what's the purpose of that kind of more informal and smaller smaller gatherings and always to make clear that decision making resides in each and every party so before intending to take a decision you always need to make sure that everybody is on board and there are many different ways of doing that of course through the negotiating groups but Again, in a multilateral conference, the informal interaction is absolutely crucial. We spend days, uh, long, long, long hours together. So there is, there is actually always a very good possibility of building up those communication lines. It is not, it's challenging, yes, but it is not impossible. Mm -hmm. Very interesting when we think of this as explaining it to an outsider on an interesting train ride, I guess it's something you would describe at, look, at 3 a.m. in the morning, we were sitting together, 10 hours, no drink, no food, but we reached a breakthrough in a very confidential setting. At least that's how I would imagine this. Can you remember like one anecdote, one example that you can think of? And you were like, gosh, this was an informal dialogue. It was so productive. Just to give our listeners an idea of, of how this actually looked like in practice. Yes, it's. I do agree with you that uh, it, is, uh, it is true. We end up many times uh, uh, very late at night, uh, sleep deprived, food deprived, uh, trying to get to some kind of common understandings. At the same time, it is really important that we do not lose sight of the need to have to be inclusive, to really bring everybody on board, because you can have, yes, and, and this is something that happens very frequently, you know, the 
some people refer to those parties as, as the big players. But the truth is that in every negotiation, there is always a core group of countries that have the most interest in the negotiation for different reasons, because of the national interest, because of their interest to really develop um, a leading role internationally. But the point is that you always need to make sure that whatever kind of agreement or understanding you reach, you have to make the political work of bringing it to the others bringing them on board so that then you can have really a good basis for decision making yeah yeah thank you no and and i'm just thinking that is even more important isn't it when we actually have a decision making system like we have it in the un climate convention that is actually ruled by consensus so you basically need every country on board and i guess that makes it even more important patricia to really listen to everyone, make it inclusive, so no one feels left out and in the end rejects maybe just on, on that ground, I assume. That's correct, that's correct. Uh, of course, consensus is a very, very valuable principle because uh, that is what will, that allows you to be confident that those understandings, those agreements will be honored by all the parties that participated. At the same time, and, and of course, there is not um, a clear definition of what is consensus or there is not a adopted definition of consensus. But uh, I think it is important to, to bear in mind that consensus does not mean that there is unanimity. Yeah. And consensus does not mean that everybody agrees with everything that is being decided upon. Yeah. Consensus means, uh, yes, this is the common understanding on which we can work forward. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And this reminds me, your words now remind me of a moment when I was researching on different summits and actually I was sitting in the plenary room on the last night in Cancun in 2010 and you were up on the podium, hundreds of negotiators in the room and the question was, will the Cancun agreements be adopted? And one flag was raised in opposition at, or at least with a question and that was by one small South American country. And you were there as a chair and in the end you were able to actually convey to the plenary that you think there was actually consensus in the room. Can you share with our listeners a bit on that moment, how you felt, what your conviction was to move forward, and maybe also what was the political capital that allowed you doing so? Yes, uh, well, it was it was certainly a very, very important moment. It was very also emotional and moving moment for me. I had been um, visualizing the different possibilities. I was um, trying to prepare myself. Okay, what if there is really a lot of opposition where we end up being in the final plenary with uh, no possibility of finding common ground for, for decision? To me, uh, what was very clear was that failure in at the Cancun conference would really derail the whole 
multilateral process uh, regarding climate change. So yeah. I think that was very it was very important to have that clarity. What is the objective? The yeah. objective is really to be able to maintain this multilateral process. Why? Because it's the only way that the world can address this incredible challenge. Yes. And um, bearing that that in mind and having done really a very thorough work throughout one full year traveling all around the world and engaging at all different levels, to me it was clear at that moment that this was the only possible basis to bring the process forward. Mm -hmm. And while I acknowledged that it was, you know, that that particular country had, of course, the right to express a different opinion and to make sure that that opinion would be reflected in the report of the conference, I felt that it would not justify the derailment of the whole multilateral process regarding climate change. And I could feel that there was this overwhelming support. I knew it because I had been talking to literally every single delegation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most of them directly, some of them indirectly, but I knew that. And I also knew that for some of the delegations that had recognized that this was the only way forward, it had taken really a big effort to accept some parts of that agreement. Yeah, yeah this was the thinking at that, at that particular moment. And how does a diplomat so experienced like you feel in that moment? What goes through your mind and heart in the last night of a summit when you get into that kind of situation? Nervous? Very, very, of course, of course. Um, I mean, it was, uh, you know, for, for me, I've, I've been a civil servant all my life. Yeah. So yeah. for me, the fact that I had clarity on the risks that the multilateral system was undergoing uh, through that particular negotiation, because I was clear also, this is going to be bad. If we don't manage to get a good outcome, it's going to be bad, not only for climate change, but in general for the multilateral system. Yeah. And um, in my diplomatic career, my multilateral experience has really been, I, I would say, the, the part that has taught me more about myself and about humanity in general. So to me, that was really, it was really overwhelming. The size of the responsibility uh, was huge. So when, when uh, we managed to get the deal approved, I was just overwhelmed. Uh, it's, yeah. it's one of those situations where you kind of feel, is this really happening? Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, emotionally very touched by the way yeah. that... Uh, my colleagues, all of the delegates were there recognizing the importance of what we had all achieved together. Yeah, yeah, very, very moving. And just to be also clear to our listeners, after you gaveled on consensus and Cancun was adopted, the train of the negotiation 
was back on its tracks after it got a bit side-railed in the Copenhagen negotiations the year before. So that moment was really decisive. And we also see that the opportunity to actually be able to do that in the last minute of an important negotiation was actually created by you and the team long time before by a very diligent preparation long month ahead of the summit itself. If you have an advice, what was a key important point that you focused on as a team when you prepared for the Cancun summit to build this political capital that you were able to use in the end? Yes, um, Kai, I would go back to to some of the points I have uh, highlighted before. It was really clarity on what was at stake, you know, that this was really, really serious. And therefore, it was not about who is going to win and who is going to lose, but rather how can we get everybody together so that all together we can make progress. Surely not the progress that many would like, but also to make sure that derailment would not would not happen. And for that, trust building through a lot of work, very, very hard work. I can share with you the first um, in some moments uh, when I started traveling and I started to ask for uh, meetings with my peers, with the ministers. Some In some places I got a re- response saying, well, the minister is not available, but maybe you can meet a vice minister or mm-hmm. the director. So yeah. I would just say, you know, sure, I will meet with the person that you want to, that can be available. I will be happy to do that. Mm-hmm. So inclusiveness is also very very important looking at the especially the groups and the countries that normally feel that they are not fully taken into yes. into account you know which are numerous so in in a multilateral system where everybody has the same voice this is absolutely crucial yeah. and to be able to have high level political engagement throughout the pre- period a success for a conference like that you cannot build in one month or in two weeks which is a, what, what the conference lasts yeah. it has to be built over time yeah very interesting and i guess patricia what comes across here if we listen to you carefully of course, it's not a one-woman show or one-man show, right? So it's really also about the whole team of a host country, the team of the host country and the UN. And if we study these processes as a center, we come across some years where we think like, oh my gosh, there was literally a fight within the team of a host country, within the ministries or between a host country and UN and One phrase we collected when we spoke to Denmark, who held the conference the year before, said one advice they have for Mexico was get your house internally in order uh, before you do anything else. What was a point that you did in action or an advice to make sure you actually have this internal alignment within the Mexican team? Well, absolutely, to have really an appropriate internal structure with clear responsibilities is crucial. 
And it is important then also to create the communicating lines. As we know, communication and coordination is probably one of the most difficult tasks in any institution, in any organization. So in a situation like this, when you have such a high responsibility, that becomes even more, more important. At the same time, in order to be able to have that alignment, it is also important to have the leadership at the highest political level. In our case, the president of Mexico was very clear. His priority was addressing climate change, sustainability. So all the ministries knew that that was really an important priority for him. So having that level of leadership is also absolutely necessary. And I would say another ingredient is the the process has very strong technical content, but is absolutely political in nature. Yeah. Yeah. So recognizing that and involving early on also diplomats, people that have experience in political negotiations is very important and they should then work together with a specialist. Well understood. Thank you, Patricia. Also so important on teamwork and listening to all these many lessons learned today. This is why we also, why we created the Center for Multilateral Negotiations. So they really don't get lost. We spoke in the beginning of the center a few years ago with the former president of the Stockholm Convention and a Swedish official, Johanna Lissinger-Peitz. And she told us, well, how do we ensure that we don't start from the scratch with every new presidency. So every new presidency making the same uh, mistakes in a way or also trying to reinvent the wheel. And so important that you actually are sharing these insights with us. Before we move to a close, I hand over to Celine with one important more point on this as a concluding thought. Yes, as Kai was there in Cancun to do his research and Patricia, you were really there on stage. I have one question for people who are maybe not the executive secretary of the UNFCCC. And because you have so much insight, do you have one advice for civil society and scholars all around the globe? What can they do to help contribute to a concerted climate action? And also, as you know, both sides of the summit, what's one advice for a host presidency and one for the secretary? Well, first of all, I would say to every individual in the world, do not underestimate the power of your actions in achieving the objectives of the Paris Agreement, in really going towards a low carbon society. So. Every action by every individual counts. And this this is uh, something that people normally don't see. It is important that they realize that every decision they take, what they buy, how they move, how they, you know, what means of transportation they use, uh, where they travel, what they eat, what they wear, everything has a carbon footprint. And this is something that is not fully realized. Second is another source of power for them is the fact that citizens are the ones who 
elect governments around the world who are the decision makers. So that's also a very powerful instrument to influence, participate and make a contribution mm -hmm. and make the right decisions. Let me also make a, a comment on um, the point by Kai just a moment ago. I think that the work that the center is doing in uh, really trying to bring together all these knowledge and process it in a coherent manner to put them to the service of the international community, especially the youth, is very, very, very valuable. If you ask me what would be the advice that you would give to uh, future presidencies, one of them would be really look at the past experiences. There's a lot to learn from, from the good and also from the mistakes. So it is uh, really a, a very, very important contribution. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Patricia. And because we are audio, you don't see us, but we were actually dancing happily <laughs> when you were saying your final words. <laughs> Not in that way. Patricia, thank you so much to all our listeners. As Patricia just said, the idea is to make this available to everyone from minister level to the student of international relations check out the center website. We have a database there free of charge that actually has these best practices. And I hope, Patricia, we can surely use some of our quotes from today to enrich that database, even with the podcast as we've had it. So check it out, everyone, if you like, www.semyun.org. And by the way, there's a next episode, of course. Now, a bit hard to find someone like Patricia to go next <laughs> that we can talk to, have an exciting post-lunch episode here and learn about their best practices, how to promote multilateralism, who, we all know this, is in very difficult times right now. Patricia, you have to run to the next important meeting that certainly has a lot to do with climate change action. <laughs> so we wish you all the best with this and we really thank you for your time. And from our side, thank you again and warm wishes from Hamburg to Bonn. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kai. Thank you, Celine. And lots of luck and uh, you can count on me and the Secretariat. Perfect. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.